Our Father in heaven, this Pentecost Sunday, we thank you for your spirit, which inspired these words we have in our hands to be written, breathed out by you, living and active. And so we pray that your spirit might might fill us afresh as we hear your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us and build us up. Lord, you know the things on our hearts, but we long this morning that you would speak to us into those things. For your glory and for our good, we pray. Amen. Um, If you've not been here for the last couple of weeks or you're just visiting us today, we're in Samuel for this series, 1 Samuel. We're working our way through um, the first 17, 18 or so chapters. Um, The people of God are settling down in the land that he has promised them. No longer are they nomadic, no longer are they traveling. Now they are at home. And they are working through what it means to apply God's word to them in this settled context. There's the chaos and mayhem of the end of the book of Judges. It's largely going to be leaving. There will be a leadership and a monarchy established among the people. But as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, it's not been an easy time. It's not an easy transition. It starts at a low ebb. Do you remember last week we said God has not been speaking very much for verse 1? But suddenly we have prophets now. So Samuel's word comes to all Israel, but that is a new thing. Because 3 verse 1, the Lord had not been saying a lot. So prophets, there seems to be some movement there. The priesthood we've seen... Um, will be dealt with this week. It was promised last week. It will be actioned this time. The scoundrels of Hophni and Phinehas um, will meet their demise this week. And we're moving towards kings being established. How will the people of God apply the word of God in God's land? So the nations will look in and say, wow, wow, I would love to live under the rule of a God like that. A kind God like that. And so there's much to be getting on with. And we've seen so far that internally it's a bit of a mess. Look at the land. Look at the people. It's a bit of a mess. That's where we've been exploring. The focus this time, though, chapter 4, 5, 6, is actually external threats looking in. This time it's the Philistines. So the previous weeks it's been what's going on inside the people. That's been the problem. This week, it's outside the people. It's their neighbours, the Philistines. And there's a lot to cover. Um, I've got Matthew to read chapter 6, because largely that's where I'm going to spend least time. But hopefully you get a flavour, and we will jump in there as well at the end. Um, But the big thing I want you to take away, if you like, the one idea that holds all these chapters together is this. It is that the Lord is not safe. The Lord is not safe. That is what he is teaching them at this point. That is the lesson that the people must learn. That even is the lesson that the Philistines learn. That is the lesson, perhaps for us, that we need to learn. And maybe we struggle with that because in part we've lost a sense of that. We've never really got that idea. And we think, I thought, I thought God was supposed to be my best friend and good, and kind, and loving, and patient, and faithful, and, and slow to anger, and you're, you're telling me he's not safe. I, I, don't, I don't get that. 
What do you mean? Maybe this helps just a little way to get towards that, and we'll see it working its way through. But an illustration um, from a friend um, at Word Alive, if those of you who were there, this stuck with me and has really helped me. Think of the Lord as being like the ocean. And you see, for the naive, novice, nautical numpty, the first month or so on the sea is brilliant. They're loving getting to, to grips with the life of the sea. It seems brilliant and beautiful, and there's sunshine and fishing, and everything is great. It's fabulous. Just imagine that. And yet for the seasoned fishermen who spent their life on the waves, they, they can tell when it's dangerous. They know when there are squalls coming. They know when it is time to stay on land. They know that the ocean is brilliant. It is awesome. But it's awesome in the original sense of the word. You can't play around with it. You must respect it. You must, you must fear it in one sense to really enjoy it. It's not safe. And so this morning we will see from different angles the Lord teaching his people, the Lord teaching the Philistines that he is not safe. Have a look down at chapter 4 with me. And the first thing I want to show you if we can is that the Lord is not a trinket. The chapter 4 is a chapter of two military battles which end up being two defeats for the people of God. And then subsequently we'll see there are two sets of two deaths described afterwards. But the centre of the story, the heart of it all, is this profound misunderstanding that the people have of who God is. Have a look down with me, and you'll see in 1 to 3 there's this initial combat. Israel is defeated, but the key thing to latch onto is their confusion over that defeat and then what their response is to the defeat. So have a look at verse 3. And when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. You see, God, God didn't seem to turn up last time. So what we'll do is we'll bring him with us and next time we have to win, yeah? Yeah. And you know, in one sense, I guess their reasoning is not completely stupid. The ark, as Tom was teaching the kids, is at the heart of their religious life as a people. It was the ark in the middle of the tabernacle that, in one sense, represented God to them, that reminded them of who he was. There were the, ten stone ta- the two stone tablets with Ten Commandments. There were Aaron's rod. There was a pot of manna. Reminders of the God who de- delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Reminders of the God who protected for them, who provided for them. And it was, in one sense, a kind of physical representation of his presence. So to take the ark into battle, in one sense, it's not completely crazy. Except, of course, for the priestly people of the time, and what we know of their faith from previous weeks, it was perhaps going to be more a superstitious trinket that they were taking into battle, a a lucky rabbit's foot. I think we're meant to glimpse that in verse 4, actually. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And we're thinking, really? Them again? Oh. 
Because we know what they think of the Lord from last time. We know that they are happy to blaspheme him. We know they are happy to take advantage of their positions as priests and to abuse their fellow Israelites. Hophni and Phinehas are a bit of a fly in the ointment. But still, the camp likes the plan. There is shouting and rejoicing when they hear of what's going to happen. The Philistines listen in. They are scared. Verse 8 Do you see, the Philistines know the history of the ark. They know how God has delivered his people. And they are shaking as a result of God delivering his people. And they take the ark into battle, and it does nothing. Seems 30,000 foot soldiers lose their lives, verse 10. Hophni and Phinehas, verse 11, they also die. And then the ark of the Lord is captured And that's a bit of a shock, isn't it? Why does the Lord let his ark be captured? It almost kind of, first glance, feels a little bit like he's biting off his nose to spite his face. Why does he allow his ark to be captured? I take it it's because he wants to teach his people. Anyway, we'll see. In chapters to come, he's more than able to look after himself. But it's telling that he should allow his ark to be captured for the sake of his people. For them learning, it is not a lucky trinket. Perhaps for them learning, it is not a self-centered religion of works that says, do this, bring this, touch this, and you'll be okay. For them to learn that lesson, for future generations to learn that lesson, he will, he will let his ark be captured by the enemies. And of course, we don't treat God like a lucky trinket, do we? Often. Thinking, do we ever think if we do this, whatever this might be, then God is bound to give us what we want. He will grant us success. You know, if I, if I uphold my side of the bargain, if I bring God into this thing, he'll have to turn up, won't he? Actually, maybe it's not so far from us. If I read my Bible, if I head to church, if I give generously, if I put the hours in, if I, if I pull my weight, then, then God will give me what I want. He's got to keep his side of the bargain, we think. Or maybe we do slide into that way of thinking far too easily. Things we do for him, objects even, that we trust in rather than trusting him. And so there are two battles that end up being lost. The one before the ark and the one with the ark. But then there are two sets of notable deaths as well. You get Hophni and Phinehas, verse 11, Eli's sons. As we heard last week, their days were numbered. But then what's striking is the responses to their deaths that we hear from both Eli, their dad, and also Phinehas' wife. Let me read 17 to 22 for us. I want you to see if you can spot the surprise in these verses. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of the Lord has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of the Lord, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. 
His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you've given birth to a son, but she didn't respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Do you see the shock? The shock is their deaths arise, not primarily from the news of Hophni and Phinehas' deaths, but from the ark being captured. Isn't that interesting? They, They do seem to care. They seem to care more about the glory of God, more about the Philistines stealing the ark than the deaths of their family. We said last week that Eli is an interesting character. He, he, he doesn't seem all bad, but he's silly, certainly not particularly good. But here we see there is something in him that cares about the glory of God. And so the name of Eli's grandson captures it well. He's going to name him Ichabod which means the glory has departed from Israel. Just imagine it. Imagine every time his name is called out, when it's time to come in for dinner, when he's in the playground at school. Each morning, his mum's shouting upstairs, or his family's shouting upstairs, Ichabod, it's time for breakfast, come down now. Every time a reminder of God's judgment against Israel. Every time a reminder of the glory being removed from the nation. And so chapter 4, we see God is not safe. He is after loyalty and allegiance and trust. He is not a lucky trinket. He is not a superstitious rabbit's foot that his people can cling on to. The second one, though, chapter 5, is he is not trounced. It's teased today. But look down at chapter 5, because you see the ark has been captured and from all intents and purposes, he looks defeated. God looks like he's been trounced. That is highlighted at the start of chapter 5. Let me read um, the first four verses again for us in chapter 5. Page 275. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place, but the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Do you see how it looks? It looks at the start like the God who made the world is now simply a spoil of war. He's been defeated by the Philistines. He has been placed into the temple of Dagon, as if he is worshipping Dagon even, as if Dagon is more powerful than him. Now, Dagon at the time was a widely worshipped god. It was thought he was in charge of grain or vegetation, a god who brought food and life to people. And yet the Lord, who in the Ten Commandments said, foundationally, you must have no other gods before me, it's as if he is bowing before another god. 
It's as if the Lord is committing idolatry before Dagon. Except, of course, we don't see that working out. We get this comical little set of events that highlight the reality and power of the Lord. It's hilarious. Each morning, who is lying prostrate before whom? While the great and powerful, life-giving, so-called God who is Dagon before the Ark of the Lord, there he is, Humpty Dumpty-like, unable to raise himself, unable to put himself back together again, unable to do anything about his predicament, totally helpless. In fact, the second time it happens, his, his head and his hands come off. The God of Israel is supreme. And here we have a graphic image of that. He is in charge. He has not been trounced. He is not helpless. Of course, if we're familiar with the Bible, maybe, maybe this section in one sense comes as no surprise to us because God very often, very deliberately works from a place of seeming helplessness and weakness and death even. He's the kind of God who looks beaten and yet rises to conquer and to resurrect again. He's the God of Good Friday, but the God of Easter Sunday. And we thought he was dead forever, but it was was the plan. His death was deliberate. He was dying in the place of his people, taking their punishment from God upon himself. Well, so here, from a seeming place of defeat, here we have life. God's plans and purposes fulfilled. And I don't want to spend too much time here, but it's worth just thinking as well, if you like putting ourselves into the the context and thinking, what are those Dagon-like gods that we look to to bring us life? Do you know, at times the Bible will be pretty un-PC in the way it mercilessly mocks idol worship. The the gods that we craft and we look to for life and we bow down to. The Bible says they don't work. They might promise us much. They might be persuasive. They might be alluring. They might look good. They might talk a good talk. But they're dead and they're helpless and yet they keep duping us. So I don't know where you look to for life. Life in the wrong places. What is your Dagon? What do you hope for? What do you daydream about? Maybe, maybe your internet history would give us a good idea of that. Maybe a look at your diary. Maybe it's a person or a thing or an experience or to be perceived in a certain way by others, to be liked and followed and loved and favorited. Maybe it's to get your body ready for the summer. Maybe it's to have the grades expected of us by teachers, by faculty, and by family. Maybe it's the house that everyone talks about. Do you know, they might all be good things. But they won't satisfy you. Don't be defined by them. Don't live for them. As John Calvin put it, our our hearts are like idol factories, always dreaming up new things to worship to worship and and bow down to, but only he can truly satisfy because only he can truly provide. And we get just a glimpse of that here. Dagon, helpless, prostrates before the true God. We get a glimpse of where our idols stand up or don't stand up. 
we see the tendency in our hearts to worship things that promise us life. But we see in stark terms what the reality is. So he's not a trinket, he's not been trounced. And thirdly as well, kind of five verse six into the end, he is not tame. I think that is the idea, the drumbeat that works its way through the rest of the story. The hinge is there in five verse six. Do you see five verse six? The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. You see, we have handless Dagon, 5 verse 4, against the God with hands, 5 verse 6 and onwards. And it's this idea of the Lord's hand that keeps bobbing to the surface again and again and again. Fly over the section with me and we'll try and get our bearings and I'll just try and show you this idea of hand as well. So 5 verse 6, we've seen the Lord's hand was heavy, but then verse 7 And because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon, our God. Verse 9, after they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city. Next page, verse 11. God's hand was very heavy on it. And so they want to send the ark back. 6 verse 3, they answered, if you return the ark of God to Israel, don't send it back to them without a gift. By all means, send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. Or 6 verse 5, perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. So you see, they, they plan to return the ark back, laden with some kind of a guilt offering, two calves pulling it. And 6 verse 8, take the ark of the Lord and put it on the cart and in a chest beside it, put the gold objects you're sending back to him as a guilt offering. Send it on its own way, but keep watching it. If it goes up to its own territory towards Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if he does not, then we shall know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. So the Philistines are trying to work out why their fortunes have gone downhill. Is it the Lord's hand or has it been a chance? But we know it seemed like the Lord had fallen into the hands of the Philistines. In reality, it was the other way around. The Philistines had fallen into the hands of the Lord. And as his enemies, that was not a good place to be. Again, there's a level of amusement in the retelling. You get this kind of countrywide game of hot potato. No one wants to be left holding the Ark of the Covenant because whoever had it ended up with some sort of plague of tumours, it seems. Possibly. Um, Commentators say that might be the bubonic plague. It would account for something of the the golden tumours and the rats that they seem to put on the Ark as they send it back. Don't really know. Um, But anyway, it goes amusingly from Ashdod to Gath, Gath to Ekron, and the people of Ekron... Maybe they took their eyes off the ball slightly. They're there holding the offending article. They've had enough. They want to get it back to Israel. What do we do? Well, guilt offering calves. Send it over the, um, into Israel towards um, Beth Shemesh. And if it goes there, then we know it was him. And we could be done with it. It's the Lord's hands that the Philistines recognize as against them. He is not safe. He is not tame. We're meant to understand. I don't know how you respond to that or your reaction to that. I take it there will be different responses in the room. Different people come from different places. Maybe there's indifference. Maybe there's unbelief. Maybe there's fear. 
I think it's striking. Actually, there are different responses within the passage for us from both the Philistines and from Israel. And I think they are there to make us sit up and listen, to consider our response to this God who is not tame, this Lord who is not safe. And strikingly as well, we find those responses in the Gospels. And as you consider them, you will see there are extraordinary similar parallels. In years to come, when people begin to get a sniff of who Jesus is, they, they see he is not safe. And their response to him, at times, is not positive. Sometimes we wrongly think, well, if my friends could have just been there, they'd seen Jesus, they'd seen the miracles, they'd seen his power, they, they would have to be persuaded. But actually, often their response is not positive, because we are not rational, we are not neutral. Have a look at the three responses with me. The first one comes from the Philistines in chapter 6. They want to get rid of him. They want nothing to do with him. So these unbelievers, in one sense, they encounter God. They see that he is powerful. They see he is dangerous. They see he is not to be trifled with. And so they bow the knee to him and work. No, they don't, do they? They want rid of him. They've experienced his power firsthand. And their response, away from us. They simply walk away. And we say, I wonder how they could do that. Come on, why didn't they come and bow down? Why didn't they join the people of God? There was a steady trickle of the people from outside of Israel coming in right through the Old Testament. We'll see it in Ruth in a couple of weeks on our weekend away. But, but not here. Then again, there are characters in the Gospels who see Jesus, who experience his power, and yet they want to go back to their old way of doing things. They want to bow down to their old old so-called gods with whom they were comfortable, with whom they were in control, perhaps. Maybe for the Philistines, they knew Dagon was inferior, but at least they could control him. At least perhaps he was safe in one sense. Perhaps our hearts like uh, a religion of works where we do stuff and we think God has to respond to that and give us what we want. I can't see into your heart, thankfully for you and for me. But maybe that is us in some sense. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer and you look at God and you see his power and, and you, you don't want it. You, You know something of God, but you're not willing to let him be God of your life. Maybe it's accounting the cost and walking away from him. Maybe we'd rather be in control of our little Dagons. We know they're inferior, but we know they won't provide even, really. But life is simpler than if we let the true God be in charge, because he is not safe. If that is you, I'd love to chat to you afterwards. Come and grab me with a coffee. Um, It'd be really good to think about that with you. So there's one response. The Philistines want to get rid of him. The second one is that Israel doesn't take him seriously. 6 verse 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Shemesh, can't say it. There we go. Putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And we wince and we go, ooh, That sounds a bit harsh, Lord. 
You put them to death just for looking in? Really? I think it's worth saying a couple of things. One, I'm told the looked word is more than a, a glance or so. It's a gaze. It's prolonged. It's deliberate. But more than that, the law was quite clear. This was wrong. In Numbers 4, you can read about a particular clan of the Levites called the Kohathites who were in charge of um, setting down and setting up the tent of meeting in the ark as they travelled. But the chapter ends, it's number 4, verse 20, Numbers 4, verse 20, but the Kohathites must not go in to look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. God is not safe. And so what were the crowd at Beth Shemesh doing? And get this idea of a foolish bunch thinking, what harm could it do to actually have a look inside? Something to tell the grandkids, isn't it? But God is not safe. He is holy and pure and glorious and his word is powerful and he means what he says. Which means we can't trifle with him. And that works its way out in various ways. But it would be remiss of me to say, if you are mucking around with sin... Run away. Run away from it. God is not safe. Sin is not funny. God is not fooled. We must take his holiness seriously. And if we don't, then ultimately there will be consequences. This Pentecost Sunday, by his spirit, get rid of sin in your life. Put on Christ. Put to death the sinful nature. Live the life that he calls you to. Look to him. Look to the cross. Be assured of forgiveness. Be assured of his death in your place. But be assured too of his resurrection and you being joined to him. Take him seriously. He is glorious. He is good. The third response 6 verse 20. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned, the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. You see, the people of Beth Shemesh do get it. And like the Philistines, they want to get rid of the ark. And so the folk in Kiriath-Jerim are called on to deal with him next. No one seems completely sure why they get it. Maybe it was simply on the way back to Shiloh. We do know they end up being there for a couple of decades. And I think in one sense, this 6 verse 20 is where the whole account has been heading. When the weight of God's glory presses down on you, who can stand? Dagon couldn't cope. The Philistines couldn't cope. The Israelites can't cope. And so verse 20 is the right question. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? How do we stand before the God of 1 Samuel 4 to 6? A God who is not safe. A God who is holy. How do we stand before him when we are not how do we stand before him when the wages of sin is death? How do people like us relate to, a, relate to a God like him? And you know your heart, don't you? Even this morning. 
or the stuff this last week that you're ashamed of, or the skeletons in your closet from weeks and months and years and decades gone by, and the things that you carry and you're ashamed of, you just can't seem to let go of them. And when we are like that, 6.20, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? None of us is the answer, not on our own. Which is why we need Jesus. Because he stands in the presence of a holy God for us. He is perfect and good and pure. He is punished for our sins. He takes God's right anger against us upon himself. Dying the death that we deserved. And so we stand in him. We are joined to him by faith. We are righteous in him. We are forgiven in him. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? We can in Christ. And you know, actually, if you do the geography... It's pretty likely that Kiriath-Jerim, where the ark ends up for these couple of decades, in centuries to come is rebuilt upon. And a town called Emmaus ends up being constructed there. Which is where Jesus meets two disciples when he's been risen from the dead. And he opens their eyes and he warms their hearts as they see the scriptures are all about him. It's because of him that we can stand in the presence of a holy God. A God who is not safe. A God who is good. Because we stand in Christ. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we've seen something of your, your holiness this morning. We've seen that you are not safe, that you are powerful, that you follow through on your word. And so we've seen that we by ourselves cannot stand in the presence of a holy God like you. And so we thank you that if we're here this morning as, as your people, as believers, then we do not stand by ourselves before you because we stand in Christ. We thank you for your extraordinary love for us in him. Lord, we thank you for the subversive beauty of the cross as you pour yourself out for undeserving people like us. And we pray that as we leave this place, you would be at work in us, changing us more into the likeness of Jesus, putting to death the sinful nature each day as we just get a glimpse of how holy you are. Thank you that this Pentecost Sunday, we, we remember we don't do it on our own. 
but we remember your spirit at work in us. Father, we, we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus and for his glory. Amen.